Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us this Sunday evening. And uh, we're entering the blazing summer of 2022. So, And we're here in the studio with Kathy Lux. Kathy, how are you tonight? I am doing well. How about you? I'm doing fine. Uh, I, I don't know whether to cheer the fact that we had a great weekend and we had a great week or that we're getting ready to start another week. <laughs> it's, so. it's a toss-up. I think just be in the moment. So so let's just cheer the weekend we're, in, we're still in. Well, we're, we're in a great week, great weekend. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about, uh, as we always try to do, talk about something a little different. Uh, we've been talking about uh, things uh, every week Everything from uh, the economy to politics to climate to pandemic to uh, other other issues. Arts in the arts in our area. We were talking about what's happening with movies, music. And, well, everything has yeah. changed. We're we're going to really try to make some sense out of the last couple of years. You know that the year twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one were because of the pandemic and the masking and the separation and the isolation and the quarantining and yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sort of missed a lot of life. <clears throat> and now that we're coming back, uh, we're coming back to somewhat of a new world. And with that new world, we're going to be talking tonight about what's what's happening it, here. It, you're, I, I agree with you. It is somewhat of a new world. and uh, yeah. Well, what, what we're doing tonight, we have with us a returning guest, Professor David Stebbin from The Ohio State University, a political historian. David, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me back on, Nick. Uh, you have quite quite a challenge tonight, David, because we're going to be talking <laughs> about what's been happening and how does it impact history. Now, you spent your life, your adult life, your professional life, studying history and making sense out of historical things that have happened and the consequences for those things. And uh, as I just mentioned, over the last couple of years, we've dealt with the pandemic. And the pandemic, of course, scared everybody with the visions of uh, freezer semi-trucks parked behind hospitals for temporary morgues. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen the economy change. We've seen it recently uh, go crazy with what's happening in the Ukraine and the price of oil. Uh, We've been watching politics, sort of the new politics from 2016 to present, what's going on. Climate change continues to be in the news or happening and work ethics and people going to work and the effect of the fact that we have a whole lot of jobs open but not people to fill them, Kathy. And, and racial issues, issues about race that, that have come up in the last couple of years that, that, that um, have been really divisive as well. Which is amazing because, you know, I'm, I'm a product of the 60s and 70s where right. I, I thought we went through all that. Exactly. I'm no longer young either and <laughs> and, and oh, i thought so for, too forever young so yes i'd like to think so well well so the thought is all these things put together um i'm thinking that we always when we read history we go back decades and we go back centuries that we see reoccurring themes where where cataclysmic things and even cultural things change mm-hmm. and uh that we've learned a lot and Unfortunately, we have Professor Professor Stebbin with us tonight, who's going to make some sense out of this. I, I hope. I hope because you know, here's my question to the professor. I look at these things sometimes, and I say, "Gosh, haven't we learned this yet?" 
Or, so what do we need to learn now? You know, or, or sometimes both. Learning is a big thing. It and, is. Uh, and I don't know how we peel the onion here, take it uh, sort of issue by issue. Uh, by the way, with our listeners tonight, uh, we do have email capability here at The Advocate by sending us an email tonight, if you like, The Advocate Radio. That's an easy one. The Advocate Radio at gmail.com. Everybody knows Gmail. So the Advocate Radio gmail.com. Send us your questions or comments about what we're talking about. We're going to be with Professor Stebbin all, all evening for an hour tonight. So uh, send your questions or commentary in. Uh, we'll be looking at that and commenting about that. But, uh, but David, um, ha- have things been so dramatic? Uh, are, do you think that there's enough that's been happening here in the last couple of years to change the course of what we think normal life is all about? Right. The pandemic certainly dealt kind of shock to the system internationally, here at home, nationally and locally. And it's been about 28 months since the pandemic arrived in a big way in the United States. And there is a kind of normality returning. But I think no matter what your position on the political spectrum, you tend to agree that uh, this new normal is not the old normal. Uh, in other words, that things have changed in the outside world and, and here at home. And uh, there are so many things we could talk about. I would say if you were a Rip Van Winkle type person and you went to sleep in February of 2020 and then woke up today, uh, it'd be debatable what the biggest surprise would be uh, one of them is, of course, what's happened in Europe and especially uh, in the Ukraine, but the war there uh, and tension that it's created between Russia and the Western nations and the NATO alliance. Uh, and so for a lot of people, uh, they thought, tended to think after the wall came down in the late 80s and early 90s, that that kind of tension and, and military conflict in Europe was over, that that was just a, a chapter in a book that had been closed forever. Uh, but if you are used to thinking in terms of the Cold War, uh, it seems in some ways that that same kind of East-West conflict has returned. Uh, and that's a huge surprise and has changed a great many things in Europe and in the U.S. So, so that's one big change. Uh, and and they're related to that is this sort of growing, renewed struggle between countries that have autocratic strongmen in charge and uh, those that struggle with all the imperfections of modern democracy, uh, which is a more participatory system with more groups and individuals participating in making decisions. And the two things are to a degree related. In other words, uh, I do think the autocrats have been encouraged uh, by problems with democracy in the Western nations. In other words, the perception that Western democracies are divided, polarized, uh, not very productive in terms of the governments, uh, and that has emboldened uh, autocratic leaders to take steps that they might not otherwise have taken. So, so the international situation, to begin with, that is really different from what it was before the pandemic. 
Well, we we talk about autocrats and uh, looking at a definition of an autocrat, uh, a ruler who has absolute power, uh, someone who insists on complete obedience from others, and imperious or domineering person. Uh, the the interesting thing, a couple decades ago, we were talking about the war between the capitalist and the communist, which were economic systems, actually. And we sort of moved away from that. And now with the autocrats, it sort of doesn't matter whether they're communist or a nominally democratic electoral type countries like Russia, but it's, it's this power thing that's, that's going on. Uh, with, with that happening, is that uh, truly a competition that we have with regard to democracy now? Is that where the battle is? Well, I think what the autocratic systems are saying is we do a better job of sticking up for the ordinary person by investing a lot of power in a handful of people or an individual at the top, right? And, and the historical perspective on this, of course, is that there was something like this in the 1930s and 40s. In other words, economic problems in the world and upheaval in some places, uh, such as Germany and Japan especially, but also Italy uh, and Spain, uh, these sort of strongmen, autocrats emerged, and their argument was giving us more authority and taking some of it away from the national legislatures and so on actually makes for a more productive government that provides what people, uh, the, the people, uh, want. And and so there's been a resurgence of that kind of thinking in Hungary and China and Russia and other places. Uh, and so, and these are not small, unimportant countries. Brazil comes to mind. So, uh, uh, so there's that challenge. And and the Western-style democracies, uh, uh, of which the U.S. is, of course, a leader, have been so divided politically. Uh, well, well, let's let's hold that thought for a moment. We're going to take a okay. short break. We're talking to Professor David Stebbin from the Ohio State University. We're talking about, uh, right now we're talking about autocracy and democracy. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back talking about what is going on and trying to make some sense out of what we're witnessing here in the United States here in 2022. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words with Kathy Lux and Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. Stay with us. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're here tonight with Kathy Lux in the studio. Kathy, how Good are you? Good evening, everybody. I'm great. How well, are you? It's great having you as always. And also, we're talking to Professor David Stebbin from The Ohio State University. He's a political historian trying to make sense. He's offering to help us tonight to try to make sense out of what we've been witnessing over the last couple of years here. Big so, task. Professor Stebbin, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Nick. Uh, as we're, we're talking about uh, autocracy and um, pretty much the definition we, we talked about a few minutes ago about the control and power and so on, almost in a way back in the 30s, driven by necessity, FDR in a way was autocratic to a degree of coming up with a lot of very anti-capitalistic programs that were needed to get the economy kick-started, or at least thought they would. Um, 
Are, are we seeing the same kind of things here? Or, or Kathy, what, you and I were talking about so, that. Yes, because David, as I was, I was telling Nick on the break, as you were, you were speaking about the autocrats um, and that sort of thing, I wasn't certain at first if you were talking about those in our country. Um, and then you started talking about other countries. I, I see that happening in our country. I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Right, and I'll answer both of those questions. The first one, the FDR-related one, is uh, important because in a crisis, the executive branch tends to be able to move most swiftly and decisively. And so in a crisis, power tends to flow to the executive. And that's an international phenomenon, but it also happens here in the United States. And I think FDR's idea was in, once things return to normal, uh, that that situation would not be permanent. In other words, he came in during the height of the Great Depression, and after the Depression came the war. He never served in a kind of normal situation. Mm-hmm. But you are quite correct that under his watch, the power of the presidency greatly expanded. I don't think he would have agreed with the notion that what he was doing was anti-capitalist. He tended to think that the reforms that he was pushing, such as Social Security, uh, for example, would tend over the long run to make a market system stable and secure and popular. So I think he Uh thought that what he was doing was making capitalism more humane and acceptable over the long run. But not everyone agreed with him then or later. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in terms of the autocracy issue here at home, there is some of that. That's exactly right. In other words, there's a parallel debate. There's one in the outside world a more domineering executive versus, you know, power more uh, equitably divided among the various branches of the government and so on. And so there's that in the world, but there's also that here at home. And there's a kind of impatience with the government that it's uh, so divided that it's not very productive. Uh, Congress especially has very low ratings, for example. And so, yeah, so there are autocratic type people in the U.S., uh, but the tradition of, of, of democracy in the Western sense in the United States is very strong. So it's harder to assemble a majority of voters committed to a sort of presidentialist autocratic system. But in places like China and Russia, which don't have a long history of Western-style democracy, uh, there's less philosophical resistance. And I keep mentioning China because when I talk to China experts about the changes made after Mao died, the most important change in the system in terms of making it more democratic structurally, the Chinese experts tell me, was in imposing a term limit on the Chinese leader. Mao was the leader for life. And in recent years, the Chinese government has taken that away. So the current leader is the first one in a long time who could conceivably serve for the rest of his life. And that has been a very discouraging thing to the proponents, the believers in making China more democratic, because it has recreated a system where the national leader can stay perpetually. Uh, And and so, uh, and again, we have a term limit uh, for our own president, for example. uh, And so there are these structural limitations on the ability of autocrats to be autocrats mm-hmm. here, as well as this deep-seated 
uh, tradition that mm-hmm. argues against mm-hmm. it as well. But but there are definitely people out there, Kathy, uh, who think in those terms, right? And so right. and that is part of what's contributed to so much tension about politics at the moment. In other words, there's literally a situation in the country where millions of people think there was something improper about the last presidential election, that it wasn't handled properly. And there are all sorts of ideas out there. Uh, and so literally the legitimacy of the election is open in the, into question in the minds of millions of people. Uh, and when I talk to students that I teach about this, uh, the, the, some of these ideas are not grounded in reality at all. The one that has the most traction in terms of having some basis in reality is the making uh, voting by mail so easy. In other words, in 2020, it was historically very unusual. Now, it's the result of the pandemic, to be sure. Uh, the feeling was it wouldn't be prudent to have millions of people all flock to the polls on this day and potentially spread the pandemic, mm-hmm. make it worse. But not everyone agrees with the necessity of having done that, right? And so there is this view that if the election had been run with the normal kind of rules in terms of you have to have a reason you're out of state or something like that to vote by mail, to vote absentee, then the overall turnout would have been less and the outcome might have been different. And there's no way to know for sure. We can't rerun the election in a different way. But the point is uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, that somehow the current government is illegitimate current president is out mm-hmm. there. And then there's within our own state of Ohio, uh, Ohio prides itself on being a bellwether, a state that votes for the winner again and again. And only twice in the last 75 years has Ohio voted for the loser in 1960 and in 2020. And those were both special elections because the Democratic candidate for president in both of those years uh, happened to be Catholic, uh, and that's an unusual thing. There, and President Kennedy and President Biden are the only two Catholic presidents ever. And when there is a nominee for the Democratic Party, uh, there have been four, uh, who is Catholic, Ohio tends to behave electorally more like Indiana than it does like Pennsylvania or Illinois, uh, because there are so many Southern Baptists living uh, in Southern Ohio, white Southern Baptists, who uh, seemingly are more put off by a Catholic, a candidate who happens to be Catholic. And so so within Ohio, the Ohioans tend to think that whoever wins in Ohio is the, the legitimate winner. Uh, and yet twice in American history in the last 75 years, Ohio has voted decisively for the loser. It, was, it wasn't close, either in 2020 or in 1960. And that leads some folks mm-hmm. in the state to think that there's something wrong with the election because, of course, Ohio votes for the winner, you know, its representatives and so on. So there's a lot of confusion about uh, that. Uh, and that also makes politics more acrimonious. Well, well let, me, uh, let me ask you a couple of questions sure. because as we're, we're going on, I'm just jotting down the question areas. Being attorney, being an attorney, it almost sounds like we're in a trial here and I'm listening to someone's <laughs> testimony. But we have a situation, 
we talk about China and how China were holding to a standard of democracy similar to the United States, which has about 330 million residents. Compared to China, that's a country about 1.4 billion last count. Uh, and, and the thought is, if we look at what we talked about FDR earlier, the fact that uh, maybe taking uh, aggressive stands toward regulating the country and, and so forth, the economy, uh, the, the question comes up uh, that 1.4 billion people in China, they're, they're like constantly in crisis and trying to manage all of those people, the size of a bureaucracy to manage 1.4 billion is is tremendous. Is it really fair for us to demand or sort of push China toward the same uh, standards that we have here in the United States? Uh, right. Is one question. Right, right, and and we should not be parochial. Different places have different challenges and different histories and so on. But the point I was making is just that the feeling after Mao left was that giving the leader. Uh, the ability to stay permanently uh, president or leader for life ultimately did not serve China well. In other words, the late Maoist period had serious problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the Chinese government itself, the leaders of the Communist Party of China, decided that it would be good for China, good for democracy in China, good for China and the Chinese people if they imposed a term limit. And it was there for decades. But recently, it's been taken away, right? And this goes back to, I think, it was Kathy's point very early in the show. Haven't we learned this lesson already? In other words, it might, in the short run, produce more stability in China and in the government to keep the same leader long term. But over the long run, that could create serious problems I, for China. I see where that can do that. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Professor David Stebbin from The Ohio State University, a political historian. And with Kathy Lux and I, we're going to be talking about, uh, again, the, actually the history, but the future. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here with Kathy Lux on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with Kathy Lux. We're here talking to Professor David Stebbin from Ohio State University about uh, what's going on with current American history. So, Professor Stebbin, thank you for joining us. So, so much to talk about. There is a great deal, a lot of problems, uh, and to some degree they're all related. Ah. For example, the, the, the political turmoil and all this disagreement uh, is, and hyper-partisanship is partly the result of an economy that has been... Uh, turned topsy-turvy by the pandemic. So uh, you remember, uh, in the early months, the the first year after the pandemic, the chief concern was unemployment, because unemployment soared when the economy shut down. Uh, And and now unemployment is relatively low, really low. Uh, But inflation has replaced it as a huge problem for many people. Uh, and so the economy stubbornly doesn't seem to want to go back to something like it was before the uh, pandemic hit. And, and the more economic problems there are, the more political division there is. And, and, and that 
situation doesn't seem to be going away. In other words, in, in the short run, uh, it could be with us for a while. It, it doesn't, and I, and I don't know how you feel, but I, you know, just speaking for myself, I see it as a situation where the politicians have taken advantage of some of the situations that arose out of this pandemic. And so um, in terms of furthering their particular goals, their their missions uh, in what they want to achieve. And, and I think that that has caused more division and that has caused more harm um, greatly. And so if you look at the economy and our ability to recover, um, you, you know, you're looking at mandates that have been put on workers that have caused worker shortages as well as the illness itself. You're looking at um, people that it, it now affects our supply chain because of those workers. It, it, it affects our medical care because of those workers who left and the shortages. And so it makes it all the more difficult for our economy to recover, and to me, that's as plain as the nose on my face, but yet the politicians, the political leaders, are not seeming to want to correct those types of things. They seem to only continue to uh, take issue with one another, exacerbate the whole situation. What What is your thought on that? I mean, that's, as a layman, as a you know middle-class American, that's how I'm seeing it. How do you see it? Well, one contributing factor is that the two parties historically have competed intensely, and that's just an aspect of our system. And there's some positive things about it and some not-so-positive things. At the moment, uh, recent presidential elections have been close, and so there's hyper-competition between the two sides. And so when you have a crisis, there are a number of different ways you can respond to it, and if you do have a strong political philosophy, then you tend to want to pursue one set of solutions as opposed to another. And so that's definitely going on, right? Uh, and the uh, there's also this sense that uh, beginning for about 40 years, starting in the early 1980s when President Reagan took over, the economy changed. The, goal, the role of the government in intervening in the economy was reduced. Taxes came down, especially on the affluent, and a new kind of economy emerged. And if you liked those changes, then you tended to assume that they were all essentially permanent. Uh, And then the pandemic came along and required, in some sense, more governmental action to address it, including the the economic consequences of it, all of a sudden unemployment. Unemployment in 2020... Uh, was really very high by American historical standards, suddenly, out of nowhere. And that demanded a response. Uh, and under President Trump, the federal government began spending unprecedented amounts of money. And under President Biden, that pattern continued. And so so all of a sudden, the, the federal government's role in the economy seemed to change almost overnight uh, in a way that was not part of the Reagan revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that bothered some people very much uh, and contributed to sort of partisan division. And so what's uh, the... I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. So what's the difference, as you stated, under President Trump, 
we began spending a whole lot of money. And that continued with Biden. But yet when under President Trump, um, we were spending a whole lot of money, but rather than experiencing um, the the inflation, we were seeing more of um, job growth, um, business growth. Um, it, it was strengthening our economy. What's the difference if they were so that administration was spending money as this one is? One seemed to help us flourish. The other seems to be bringing us down. What's the difference? Right. And one, there's a huge debate about that. In other words, it's hard to know for sure. The Republicans tend to think that President Biden has spent too much. In other words, that uh, if Donald Trump had been reelected and still served in the White House, then the spending would have been reduced in 2021. Whereas under President Biden, and the Democratic-controlled Congress spending increased. There was more spending. Mm -hmm. And so one point of view, popular among Republicans, is that the Democrats have overdone it. Their heart is in the right place in some sense. They want to put money out there to help people who need it, but that it's self-defeating in the sense that if you have high inflation, it harms people with ordinary incomes, and it harms the poorest people the most in some ways because they have the least money to spend. And so, uh, so that's one view. Another view is that the, there are multiple sources of the inflation. In other words, you mentioned the supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. And the supply chains in the world just don't want to get better. In other words, the problems continue. And increased conflict, most notably the war in Europe, in, in the Ukraine, has contributed to that situation. Uh, also increased tr- tension over trade policy between the United States and China. And so, uh, and then there's the price of energy, oil and gas and so on. Mm-hmm. And that also has spiked in response to the conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, and so, so the, well, another view is perhaps President Biden and his administration has overdone it, but there really are other things going on that are driving up prices as well, and maybe more so than than what Washington is spending. Sure. So and, it's, and, and we, we may not know for years who's right on that debate, but if you have a partisan political orientation, uh, you tend to think your side is right. So, but 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 the but the fact of the matter is, I'm, in terms of some of these things, you can, uh, an ordinary person can't help but wonder how much of it is being created and for instance the energy issue so the fact is the energy issue we we were headed for trouble before the the war in ukraine um we were already starting to have problems yet under the last administration um it, we we actually achieved the status of being energy independent now suddenly because we can't get energy from elsewhere or other people are having energy problems uh, with their production and, and, you know, the Russia pipeline, the whole, suddenly that that's affecting us. I I don't think as a people in this country, I don't believe people understand it or, and, or are buying 
into the explanation that it has to do with the Ukrainian war. Right. And, by the way, another factor here is this sense that the Democrats, as a party, are much more in favor of environmental regulation. Right. And so if you put the Democrats back in power, then that tends to make it harder for the oil and gas industry to drill, explore, develop new sources. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Trump administration was viewed as very business friendly, including the oil and gas sector, right? And so I think there are millions of people who believe that that's the chief problem. In other words, that uh, the incentive, uh, the ability of the oil and gas mm-hmm. industry to develop new sources within the U.S. has been adversely affected yes. by the return of the Democrats to power in Washington. I, well, I, let, I would fall in that there. group. We're going to take a break. <laughs> Uh, We're listening to Professor David Stebbin from The Ohio State University. We're going to be back after these and like to talk about uh, using Professor Stebbin's retrospective view toward history on these topics, see if we can project and prospectively sort of estimate what's going to happen in the next maybe five to ten years based on these issues as we've just discussed. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here with Kathy Lux here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with the final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Thank you for joining us here in Cleveland, Ohio at WHK with Kathy Lux, and we have Professor David Stebbin. Uh, We're talking about the future of the country, Uh, not a trivial topic. Uh, We're glad to have Professor Stebbin. Thank you, David, for joining us. You're very welcome. Uh, in In our final segment tonight, Kathy and I were just talking during the break about uh, the meaning of all of this, the the fact that our our form of democracy is being challenged. There's a call for a constitutional convention to uh, relook at the entire constitution of the United States, and if that happens, everything's up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And uh, from a historian's point of view, looking retrospectively at how things play out. Uh, and you know we have the pandemic that we can compare to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. We have the um, economy issues. Uh, we can look back at the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, the fact that we have Russia invading Ukraine, we can look back at World War II and, and all of those things. Do you think that the United States system of democracy is still valid? Uh, is there some valid issues that can call for some dramatic changes in the way we do government? Well, as a model for other countries at the moment, the U.S. is a problematic example in a couple ways. One way, of course, that we've already talked about is sort of our election process, especially our presidential election process which is unique to the United States, the Electoral College aspect, and not viewed very positively elsewhere in the world. And but and related to that, you mentioned the pressure for a constitutional convention. The U.S. Is a, has like an old constitution by world standards, and it, it, if you have an old constitution, you tend to have a greater need to amend it from time to time to make changes, to keep up with changes in the world, the society, the economy, and so on. 
But uh, the mechanism for amending the Constitution requires the two parties to cooperate. In other words, purely partisan constitutional changes almost never get adopted because you need two-thirds in each House of Congress and then three-quarters of the states. And those supermajorities are very hard to achieve, impossible to achieve, really, if the two parties are on different sides. And so in the 20th century, there were a lot of amendments by American historical standards, but that was because the two parties often worked together, at least parts of both parties, worked together to bring those changes about. So in the 21st century, there have been no amendments adopted. And that is in part because the two parties are now so polarized, so at odds with each other, that the amendment process doesn't seem viable. And that has created more pressure uh, for a convention, uh, in part because the only other way to change the Constitution is through creative constitutional reinterpretation by the Supreme Court. And that's what's been happening. And that is very controversial because Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court is, in some sense, the least democratic part of the federal government. In other words, the justices are not elected, and they serve for life if they choose to, and they're not really sanctionable by the electorate in any normal way. And so if you can't amend the Constitution uh, and you don't like what the Supreme Court's been doing lately— then the only seeming alternative is to push for a convention. But we've never had a convention since the one in Philadelphia in 1787. And it's not clear that that it would produce uh, a workable result, because the one in Philadelphia was the result of an endless series of compromises, adding up to one big compromise. But at the moment, compromise is not popular in American politics. And so you, even if you called a convention, it might simply break up in acrimony because it couldn't adopt a document that would be acceptable to the states, enough of them, uh, to, to ratify. And so, so the, the, the inability of the American Constitution to change except through Supreme Court reinterpretation at the moment is a weakness, a problem. Uh, and one of the interesting questions going forward is, Will the two parties gradually learn to cooperate more? And one interesting thing that's happened recently is since the war in Ukraine, Congress has been remarkably unproductive in most areas. But with respect to the response to what's going on in Ukraine, the two parties have worked together speedily and efficiently to aid the Ukrainian government. And it's really quite remarkable. There are almost two Congresses at the moment. There's the domestic Congress which strains to do much of anything, uh, domestic policy issues. And then there's the Congress that deals with foreign policy, especially Ukraine and so on. And that Congress is very, it's positively 1940s or 50s. It's bipartisan mm-hmm. and it's quick and so on. And it, so... It, it does, it, you're, you're so right. And it does, it adds to the feeling among the American people that our government leaders are working for uh, those outside of our country, but not for us here. Right, right. That that dichotomy is not lost on the ordinary voter. It is not. In other words, well, if we can respond to the crisis of the Ukraine, why can't we respond better in a more united way, uh, especially in Congress, to the crises that afflict us at home? Uh, and the question is, can Congress and the 
all the various parts of the government, the Supreme Court, uh, the executive branch working with them, can leaders in Washington and in the state capitals learn from the Ukrainian example? Uh, and, and nobody knows. It's an election year, and of course the whole dynamic of election year is at odds with that because it tends to emphasize competition between the two parties. So it'll be very interesting to see after the elections are over if the two parties start working together more. And it's hard to know. Well that, that well, that is true. Well, the election, the midterm election coming up is going to give everybody in the country the opportunity to have their say and uh, sort of express their, their interest and their beliefs. W- with that happening, do you, do you find that uh, the voters by their vote can keep us from being hapless witnesses to what's going on and have the American people actually start uh, contributing to policy and, and save, well, our, save our situation? There are different ways of expressing dissatisfaction. The electorate is, if I can believe what I'm reading, is pretty dissatisfied with the state of affairs. And one way of expressing that is to vote for the other party, whatever that means. So if the Democrats control Congress, vote for the Republicans to control Congress. Another way of expressing dissatisfaction, especially if you're a Democrat, is to stay home, right? In other words, not turn up. And uh, off-year elections struggle uh, with apathy anyway, because politicians in both parties are unappealing to many in the broad middle of the electorate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's unclear what message, uh, you know, the voters will express their grumpy, assuming they're as grouchy on Election Day as they are at the moment, which seems likely. Uh, and by the way, let's say... Uh, wisdom is correct. In other words, grumpy voters vote for Republicans to control Congress because they're unhappy with the current state of affairs. The Democrats are in charge in Washington, so you do that. Well, I tell you, challenge. We, we are out of time. We're going to have to have you back to talk about the, the right. challenges. However, oh, it's been so interesting. It, it, it has been, but my big question, real quick, in about five seconds, are you optimistic about the future of the country and our system? In the, in the long run. That's the answer we're going to go home and go to bed with tonight. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. Well, <clears throat> Dr. David Stebbin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll be back uh, next week. Thank you for joining us, uh, and David. Thanks for the great question. Thank oh, you so much. It was much. a pleasure having you. Thank and you. thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and next week, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. The Advocate is sponsored by Nick Phillips and is responsible for its content.